Good morning, brethren and sisters. Well, the last day has come, and I think it was as well, brethren and sisters, that we preserved the greatest of all Nazarites to our last study. And we come this morning to look at he whose mind was wholly given to his father and who was separate from his brethren in that sense that he might redeem us to God. And so, brethren and sisters, we're going to have a look today at the first Nazarite and at the greatest Nazarite. And neither of them were really Nazarites in the truest sense of the rituals, as we shall see. They were not ritual Nazarites, but they were certainly great Nazarites before their God. I want you to come back with me to Genesis 49, because you will be aware, doubtless, that the title for our study this morning is based upon Genesis chapter 49, and the prophecy of Jacob concerning Joseph. And in verse 26 of Genesis 49, we have the first occurrence in the scriptures of the word Nazar, or Nazarite. We read there in the 26th verse, towards the end, and they shall be on the head of Joseph, and on on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. That word separate there is our word Nazar, Nazarite. So Joseph is set forth as the first Nazarite. And yet when you read this little prophecy concerning Joseph, it becomes quite evident that he is very closely connected to the vine. So it's not a ritual Nazarite that's being referred to here, because of course the law was to come later concerning the stipulations required of Nazarites, this is a special Nazarite. And we read this little prophecy concerning Joseph, which begins at verse 22, and we find that Joseph is set forth as a type of Christ. He, of course, bears the name, the increaser, he shall add. And that's the subject matter of this little section of Jacob's prophecy. It's about Yahweh increasing the family his family, through the increaser, who is described in verse 22 as a fruitful bough, Ben Paroth in the Hebrew. Ben, of course, means a family builder. So here is a, as if I might use the translation of another, here is one who is the son of a fruitful tree or vine. And it says of him, he's a fruitful vine by a well whose branches and that word branches is the Hebrew word banoth which of course is the feminine of Ben whose branches whose family builders run over the wall and immediately brethren and sisters our mind goes to John chapter 4 and we see our Lord Jesus Christ coming weary in his journey to Sychar near Shechem and he sat down upon the well that Jacob had dug, which was in a parcel of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, the increaser, who was also known by his Egyptian name, Sathnathaniah, the saviour of the world. And that's how that context ends up. When there is a multitude of Samaritans that have been brought to the truth 
to the Lord working on one of their daughters. The record says that the Samaritan said of him, he is the saviour of the world, the increaser, because he had just built the divine family by introducing the truth to the despised Samaritans who received it. And so we see that imagery here in verse 22 of Genesis 49, whose vine, whose branches run over the wall to increase the family of God. We go over the page to verse 23. The archers have sorely grieved him, speaking, of course, of our Lord's tribulations. They hated him like Joseph's brethren hated him. But his bow abode in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Then there's a parenthesis. This little phrase or two in parenthesis tells us from thence is the shepherd the stone of Israel. And I just want you to focus upon two elements of this prophecy. There is much that could be said about it. Just two elements. That of verse 22, whose branches, like a fruitful vine, run over the wall, speaking of the increasing of the divine family, and of this stone in verse 24. It is the Hebrew word eben. And eben means a building stone. So here we see Joseph set forth as a type of Christ. He is the building stone upon which God's house is built and a branch that runs over the wall and you'll recall of course the words of Leviticus 25 verses 5 and 11 where the word Nazar or Nazarite is rendered as a vine undressed so it's running over the wall so there are very strong links here brethren and sisters with the Nazarite principle and why shouldn't that be the case because Joseph is setting forth the type of the greatest of all Nazarites who was separate from his brethren. We read, as we go down into verse 25, Even by the God of thy father, the ale of thy father, who shall help thee, and by the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts shed, and of the womb. Now we know that the title there, Almighty, is the Hebrew Shaddai. It comes, as Brother Thomas points out, from two Hebrew terms. The term Shad, breast, and Shadad, burly or strong. And you can follow that title through the scriptures and you will find places where both of those elements occur. For instance, in Genesis 18, you have Yahweh sending three angels to Abraham and Sarah that he might increase the divine family and nourish children through Abraham. And he presents himself in chapter 17 verse 1 to Abraham as El Shaddai, the strength of the nourishers. But two of the angels who come to Abraham in chapter 18 go to Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy it. And Yahweh shows himself to be the strength of the destroyers. 
But predominantly, brethren and sisters, when you find that title, Ael Shaddai, it is in relation to the father developing his family and nourishing his children. That's why it says at the end of verse 25, the blessings of the breasts, Shad. So here is a father developing a family and nourishing them. And he would do it through the development of the greatest of all Nazarites who would increase his family. That's what happened in Jacob's family. Through Joseph, his brethren were redeemed. And so we read in verse 26, the blessings of thy father have prevailed. They have prevailed, he says, above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and the crown of the head of him that was separate, a Nazarite, from his brethren. So we see Yahweh as Ael Shaddai, the family builder. And now we see the key principle by which that family was built. The blessings were to be on the head of Joseph. The head. We've been talking about that all week. The source of his triumph over his enemies. And this word crown here in verse 26 is the word podkod in the Hebrew. It means the very top of the head where the anointing oil was poured. And that symbolises the spirit which motivated his thinking. This is what set Joseph apart from his brothers. He thought differently to them. They were driven by carnality and by violence. He was driven by the desire to uphold the principles of God and to redeem his brethren. And so the blessings would be upon the head of Joseph, the very top of the head where the oil of anointing was poured. And so we read that he was separate from his brethren for the purpose of saving them. And God, of course, provided one from among the sons of men who was able to do what we cannot do, brethren and sisters. We are unable to perfectly overcome human nature, its propensities and tendencies. But he did. And so we see here, in the imagery surrounding Joseph and the blessing laid upon him, a wonderful testimony to what was to come in due time. I want to take you now to that chapter we read this morning, Zechariah chapter 3. And I want you to notice this. I pointed out that the imagery which is brought together in Genesis 49 of the vine running over the wall or the branch and of the building stone, Eben, upon which the house of God was to be built were symbols used in relation to the Nazarite ship of Joseph. That's important because when you get to Zechariah chapter 3, that's what we find again. The imagery of the stone and the branch are brought together in verses 8 and 9 of Zechariah 3. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for thou men wondered at, for behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now why would the Spirit choose this particular symbology? And why then immediately add in verse 9, For behold, the stone, Eben, same word, Genesis 49. 
So we've got a branch and a stone identified. Brought together in the imagery of the resurrection and glorification of Jesus Christ as the builder of Yahweh's family. And that's what this context is about, isn't it? We all know that. But it says in verse 9, And over one stone shall be seven eyes, the spirit intelligences of the glorified saints who are built upon the building stone of God's house, the cornerstone, the foundation stone. That's the imagery. And we know, brethren and sisters, from verse 8, that Joshua the high priest is presented here as a man of sign. We read there, these are men wondered at. We all know that that literally should read, these are men of sign. So what we are reading here is a sign of things to come. And there's no dispute about what they point to. Because when you turn the page or so in Zechariah to chapter 6, you find in verses 11 to 13, this little cameo here of the coronation of Christ in the midst of his brethren, that he might sit as a priest upon the throne of David. In verse 11, we read, Then take silver and gold and make crowns and set them on the head of Yahshua, Yahweh's salvation, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, the branch that runs over the wall to increase the divine family from amongst Jew and Gentile. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of Yahweh. Even he shall build the temple of Yahweh and shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne. He's a king, priest. So the imagery of chapter 6 is of the coronation of Christ as king and priest when the throne of David is established in Zion and he sets about to build not just the, the literal house, which he will do, but to build the spiritual house of God. And so, brethren and sisters, there's no doubt, is there, that Zechariah chapter 3 is about the first stage of the development of those things. It's about the resurrection of Christ, his immortalization, his assumption of priesthood. Let's just have a look at that. Let's come back to chapter 3 of Zechariah again. Let's have a look at verses 1 to 7. <coughs> and here we see... Joshua the high priest set forth as a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. He showed me Joshua the high priest <coughs> standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan, we believe the Samaritans and the enemies of the Jews who were attempting to rebuild the house of God, standing in his right hand to resist him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke thee, O Satan, even Yahweh that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? And the attention is focused on Joshua, the high priest. Now Joshua, it says in verse 3, was clothed with filthy or soiled garments, as the word in the Hebrew, suyim, means. Soiled garments. Because he had been labouring with his brethren in the building of the house. He was not a high priest that was not identified with his brethren. He was there with them in the work. And he got soiled garments as a result of it. 
And so those soiled garments become a type of the nature that our Lord Jesus Christ bore in common with ourselves. And we read in verse 4 that he answered and spake, that is, the presiding angel, who we are told in Jude, verse 9, is Michael the archangel. The presiding angel speaks to the ministering angels who are standing around this scene here with Joshua on, on one side and the, and the Satan, the enemies on the other, and there's a, a court case that goes on. We're not so much concerned about that. <clears throat> We're more concerned about focusing on Joshua and his soiled garments. And what happens? We read in verse 4 that the presiding angel says, take away the soiled or filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. Now this term iniquity is used in the metonymical sense. It's a metonym for the source of sin. Like the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 verse 6 that Christ destroyed the body of sin. That is, he pinned this nature to a state and quieted its motions in death. It could no longer operate when he was dead. He destroyed the body of sin, the body in which resides propensities, which he had overcome absolutely throughout every single day of his life. And so, brethren and sisters, when it says here, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, it is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ putting to death the body of sin. And I will clothe thee with a change of raiment, he says. Now, Rotherham translates that, robes of state. It's a reference, we believe, to the high priest garments because Joshua had been labouring with his brethren building the temple. He was soiled, but he was the high priest. And so his raiment was to be changed. He was to assume the stately robes, the, the robes for beauty and for glory of the high priest, that he might assume his rightful role amongst his brethren. And we can see what this is saying, can't we? We can see that this is about the death and the resurrection and the immortalisation of Christ, that he might assume his rightful role as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But there's something very special about the way this is presented, brethren and sisters. Very special. The change of nature symbolised by the change of raiment, was to come only after his head was crowned with a fair mitre. See verse 5? Brother Rob read this correctly. It doesn't say, and I said. It should read, and he said. Because it's the presiding angel, Michael, who makes this statement. He's the one who is managing this little transaction because, you see, it's like they're having, as it were, if angels needed this, and they don't, as it were, they were having a practice run. When these things would become a reality 500 years later, and Michael would be there to supervise the resurrection of Christ, and he would have ministering angels who would be standing around him, 
and he would be telling them what to do. It's just like our children. They had practice runs with their play, didn't they? And we read in verse 5, he said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. Now in what order is this done? So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. There's the order. The first thing that is done is for the mitre to be set on the head. And then he gets a change of raiment. Now remember that. Because, brethren and sisters, if this is typical of the resurrection of Christ, and it is, then we're going to find these same things when we come to the record of his resurrection. And we're going to find that the Spirit wants our minds to go back to Genesis 49 and to take the steps through Zechariah 3 into John 19 and John 20 and to see that all of this is about the crowning of the greatest of all Nazarites. That's what it's about. Now we read that in verse 6 the angel of Yahweh protested to Joshua saying Thus saith Yahweh If thou wilt walk in my ways and if thou wilt keep my charge then thou shalt judge my house thou shalt keep my courts and I will give thee right of access as it should read among these that stand by he would become the greatest of all God's sons he would have right of access amongst the angels. He would be greater than, than them all, even, of course, than Michael, who presided that day. That was the promise held out. Now let's come, brethren and sisters, then, to John chapter 19. With that background in Genesis 49 and Zechariah 3, we can come to the last moments of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 19... And verse 28. And here he is, hanging upon the tree in his final moments. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, and I find this extremely interesting, I thirst. What would they give him? We know what they gave him. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, product of the vine. So here is the man, brethren and sisters, who has lived the principles of Nazariteship every single day of his life, all his days. And yet we know that he drank wine. He passed it around the upper room. He created it at Cana in Galilee. He is often depicted as having long hair. There's no record of that in the scriptures because you see he wasn't a, a literal ritual Nazarite. He was a true Nazarite in terms of the principles. 
And we know he was always touching dead bodies. And they sprang to life again. And here he is at the end of his vow. It says in verse 28, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, teleo, the, me, the word means to end, to complete, to execute, to conclude, to discharge. He had discharged his vow. And what did a Nazarite do when he had discharged his vow? When the sacrifice was made at the completion of his vow, the record of number 620 says, the Nazarite may drink wine. He said, I thirst. And they gave him wine. What happens then? Verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. Same word, talio. It is completed. His vow was complete. And he bowed his head like the Nazarite who came to the priest and bowed his head and his hair was shaven and it was thrown into the fire of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. Isn't it interesting that the thing to which our attention is drawn in the last breath of our Lord is his head. It's his head. Well, that was the source of his triumph over sin. And here he is, like a Nazarite, bowing in the presence of Yahweh to demonstrate the completion of the vow. Now, what about a change of raiment? Well, I believe, brethren and sisters, that John chapter 20 and the events surrounding the resurrection and the immortalisation of Christ are based upon Zechariah 3. That's why when you come to John chapter 20 and verse 3, you read that Mary Magdalene, who visited the sepulchre early on the first day of the week, came and saw that the stone was taken away. She probably looked in. She could not see the body. She was beside herself and she ran to the apostles and she came to Peter and John. And Peter, verse 3, went forth and John and they came to the sepulchre. They ran both together, the younger man outran Peter and stooping down, verse 5, and looking in, he saw the linen clothes lie. Yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulchre, and he seeth the linen clothes lie. Now there were angels here, unseen by Peter and John, but they had done their work. And I believe they were the same angels who were there in Zechariah chapter 3. And we read, brethren and sisters, in verse 5 and 6, of these linen clothes lying. The linen clothes in which the body of the Lord had been wrapped symbolised, indeed memorialised, his mortality. And they were left just plonk in the middle of the tomb. That word lying there in the Greek is the word 
Kimai. And it means simply to lie outstretched. And I saw this this morning outside people's rooms. There was linen clothes lying, ripped off a bed and just plopped in the passageway. No order, just dumped. And here we've got that which represents the mortality of Christ, just left in the middle of the tomb. And we've got to find that there was something different done to the napkin that had been about his head. Something very special was done with that. And so, we read in this record, as we move down to verse Six, verse 7 and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes but wrapped in a place by itself we want to come back to that brothers and sisters but I want to suggest to you something if what we have here is based upon Zechariah chapter 3 If Zechariah 3 was about the resurrection of Christ and the change of raiment was symbolic of putting on immortality, at what point was Christ immortalised after he was resurrected from the dead? I'm going to suggest to you that he was immortalised before he left the tomb. And I believe that is revealed to us in a number of different ways. For instance, in John chapter 11 and verse 44, when Lazarus came out of the tomb, he was bound hand and foot with grave clothes, the very symbol of his continuing mortality. Unwrap him, said the Lord. He was outside the tomb, still wrapped in the wrappings of mortality. Soiled garments because he was going to go back in there again in due time. But our Lord Jesus Christ, brethren and sisters, I believe, came forth from the tomb with a change of raiment, both a literal change of clothing and a change of nature. And the literal change of clothing was symbolic, as it was for Joshua, of a change of nature. Now, of course, I'm fully aware of the common understanding of John 20 and verse 17. And the first question I'm going to be asked is, well, how do you explain that? Now, this is a digression which I wish didn't have to, we didn't have to go through, but by experience I know that some might suggest that what we're saying here has some doctrinal implications. And there are no doctrinal implications for what I'm saying. Because you see, there is no such thing as immortal emergence. And that's something that we've been accused of before. There isn't anything like immortal emergence. We are raised in the same nature which we take into the grave. And that was as true of the Lord as it will be of us. But I do believe, brethren and sisters, that our Lord was changed in the tomb and that he walked from it victorious over the tomb, never to return there again like Lazarus would do. But it does raise the issue, doesn't it? 
How do you explain verse 17? Mary Magdalene was clearly beside herself. There's no question about that. Verse 11, Mary stood without the sepulchre weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked in. Sees two angels. Doesn't even recognise them for what they are. She talks to them as though they're ordinary men. She's beside herself. And in verse 14, when she had turned back, she saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. That's how emotional she was. And you can understand that to some degree. And we come down to verse 17. When Jesus reveals himself, Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. And the normal interpretation of that is that he was not yet immortal. And that the reason for not touching him was that he had been defiled by death. I don't believe so, brethren and sisters. This word touch, haptomai, means to attach oneself to, to cling to, to, to lay hold of. The RSV translates it, do not hold me, waymouth, do not cling to me. And here is a woman so full of emotion that when she realised that she was talking not to the gardener but to her Lord, she grabbed hold of him as though he would disappear again. And he is gently reminding her that he's not going anywhere for a while. He says, I am not yet ascended to my father. Now there are 81 occurrences of that word anabeno in the New Testament and only Ephesians 4, 8 to 10 have any hint at all of an ascension of nature. You can step through John as I have done and you will find that the word is only used of going up. Literally going up. And the Lord was always talking about that, wasn't he? And the disciples grappled with this. They didn't understand. But in chapter 16, verse 28, he said, I go to my Father. I am literally going to my Father. And they said, oh, now you're speaking plainly. They didn't have any concept that he would be leaving them for such a long time to go to his Father. So he tells Mary, there's no need to hang on to me, Mary. I've not yet gone to my father, but I will be going. You go and tell my brethren that that's what's going to happen. And I want to see them. Consider, brethren and sisters, if you, as I do, believe that Christ was raised about 6pm on the Sabbath, why would God leave our Lord in mortality for up to 12 hours or more? Because... This was the next morning. How would Christ, with a change of raiment, defile others who touched him? Isn't this the man who touched dead bodies and they sprang to life? Didn't he touch lepers who were unclean and they sprang to, to, to hell? There was no need to cling to him. He would be physically present with them for 40 days before he ascended to his father. His nature at resurrection was like your nature and mine will be at resurrection. Paul says in Romans 14 verse 9, Christ died and rose. The word rose and esteemy means to stand up and he revived. It means to recover life. There were two stages. He stood up and then he was changed. 
Brother Thomas says, but passing through the grave cleanses no one. They who emerge thence come forth with the same nature they carried into it. He was woken from death. Mortal, I believe. Caused to stand up so his grave clothes could be unwound from him and given new clothing. At that point, I believe, brethren and sisters, his nature was changed that he might walk victorious from the tomb, but not before something very important was done. Now think about this. Think about this napkin in chapter 20, verse 7. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes. The word napkin means handkerchief or a sweat cloth. It relates to his mortality, but look what happened to it. This was the cloth wound around his head and when the angels stepped into that tomb and they woke him the first thing they did was to undo the cloth around his head can you imagine what that was like can you think about that moment the Lord is awake and the angels are taking off the cloth around his head and his eyes are revealed to them and then his mouth can you imagine the look into the eyes of the angel. And out of his mouth would come the words of Psalm 31 verse 5, I believe. His last words had been, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the next words of Psalm 31 verse 5 are, Thou hast redeemed me, O Yahweh, ale of truth. And there would be a smile on the face of our Lord as the angels looked down upon him and they would stand him up but not before they did something special with that napkin have a look at it the napkin not lying with the linen clothes but wrapped wrapped together the Greek word means to roll up to wrap so whereas later on when the linen clothes of his body was simply taken from him and dumped. The napkin was neatly folded and rolled up. Why? Because it symbolised the source of his victory. It was tantamount to the fair mitre of Zechariah 3, which was the first thing done to Joshua. Put a fair mitre on his head and then give him a change of clothing. So the first thing the angels did was to take the wrapping of his head and to put it in a place by itself as a testimony to the source of his victory. Brethren and sisters, that's what I believe is being said here based upon Zechariah chapter 3. Set a fair mitre. Now, the mitre was a turban. It was a long piece of cloth wound around the head of the high priest and fixed in place. And then, of course, on it was placed the golden plate tied with the ribbon of blue. And here we see, brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus Christ in that position. Stood up now. Given a change of raiment walking triumphant from the tomb. 
What then are the lessons for us in our considerations this week? I want you to come to 2 Corinthians 6 where we started a few days ago. In 2 Corinthians 6 and at verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, he says, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion hath light with darkness and what concord hath Christ with Belial or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are a temple, as we pointed out, a temple of living God. And God says, I will dwell in them. In, within, is the Greek word. And I will walk about in them. Different word, in. He walks about in us. So here, brethren and sisters, is the position we find ourselves in. <laughs> Having committed our, ourselves, as it were, to a Nazarite vow, in the day of our baptism, we were called to be the a house, a temple of living God. And God wants to dwell within us and to walk about in us so that when people see us, they see him. That's an awesome idea. But it is our calling. And he says at the end of verse 16, And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now we've got just a couple of minutes to come back to the place from whence that's quoted. Jeremiah chapter 7. Let's have a look at that. Jeremiah 7 and verse 23. Jeremiah 7 verse 23 is in itself quoted from Leviticus 26 verse 12. We read there in verse 23 of Jeremiah 7, But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. Drawn from Leviticus 26.12. But look at the context in which this quotation is made. The context is about walking. You will see, for instance, in verse 23, And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you. Verse 24, But they hearken not, nor incline their ear, but walk in the councils and in the imaginations of their evil heart. Just step back a page to chapter 6, verse 16. Thus saith Yahweh, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein and ye shall find rest for your souls. You know that passage is quoted by the Lord in Matthew 11 and verse 29. But they said, we will not walk therein. So as you work through Jeremiah 6 and 7, you find the subject matter is about walking. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 6. At the end of the verse, Neither walk after other gods to your hurt. Verse 9. Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto, unto Baal, and walk after other gods? So this context is about God's temple, his people. See verse 4 of chapter 7. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh are these. They claimed to be God's temple, but they walked in their own ways. 
Paul picks up this context and he says, Ye are a temple of living God. And God wants to be within you. And he wants to walk about in you. But Israel failed him. They walked in their own ways. And guess what you find in this chapter? Chapter 7 of Jeremiah. Verse 29. Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away. That word, thine hair, it's just the one Hebrew word rendered thine hair, is Nezer. That's the word used 13 times in number 6. So what God is saying is, you are failed Nazarites. You need to cut off your hair and to make a new staff, Israel. Like a failed Nazarite. And start all over again. And if you understand what Nazariteship is about, you'll understand it's about me being within you. Dominating your thinking so I might walk about in you. So that wherever you go, people say, there's God. That's what Nazariteship's about, brethren and sisters. Come back to 2 Corinthians 6. I said to you at the outset that every phrase here is based upon the Nazarite vow. Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 6. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. Nazar, a separate one. Saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean. Cross out the word thing. The unclean. And I will receive you into fellowship, he means. And I will be a father unto you, because I'm the family builder. And ye shall be my sons and daughters. Remember, number 6 verse 2, when either a man or a woman shall separate themselves to vow the vow of a Nazarite unto Yahweh. That's where that comes from. Seth the Lord Almighty. What's that title? That's El Shaddai. Remember Genesis 49? Ael Shaddai, the nourisher of a family. Then, brethren and sisters, we read in verse 1 of chapter 7, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness or Nazariteship in the fear of God. There's no doubt, is there? The Apostle Paul has in mind the principles of the Nazarite. Let us, brethren and sisters, go from this place more determined to be Nazarites unto God.